There are certain things that are important to learn that you have to take the initiative to teach yourself or to begin teaching yourself. No professor is going to do it. Very few bosses are going to do it. And the reason is these traits aren't required to get a degree or to do a job, but they are required to live a life that is both fulfilling and as low stress as possible. Hi, I'm John McLaughlin. I'm a former U.S. Army paratrooper, now working as a lawyer and writer. And my first book is entitled How to Deal with Damn Near Anything, The Paratrooper's Guide to Life. One thing that was very important to me when putting the book together was to rely on research as much as possible. Because otherwise, it's just a guy telling stories. And that's fine for five minutes, 10 minutes. Hopefully, it's fine for 45-minute podcast. But it's not necessarily going to be fine for an entire book. So I went into some detail to find whether the instinctual things I thought from my own experience were actually backed up by research. It starts with self-awareness. You cannot fix the right things if you can't acknowledge the right things need fixing. Look for ways that you can get that honest feedback, that you can get feedback from people you wouldn't usually get it from. I want to understand where does hardship really come in? Well, I think there's two two answers I have. One, I think hardship is an important... So, let's not keep you waiting any longer and turn through the pages of this open diary. I hope you are listening. John, for people that don't know you, share, us, share with us your resume and what you've done so far in your life. Sure. My name is John McLaughlin, and I'm a former Army paratrooper and writer specializing in self-development. And what that has meant to me is after almost 20 years in the Army, both full-time and part-time in a variety of jobs, I realized that there's sort of a hidden side to the military that contains lessons that are, are useful for everyone. And my job now is to try and get those lessons out there in a way that helps people reach their own goals. I first joined the Army coming out of university. I had not planned to be in the Army. I, I grew up with my grandma, so there was zero Army discussion uh, in my childhood. But I happened to graduate uh, about six months before 9-11, the attack on the you know various places in the U.S. So I changed my thinking, and I wanted to see what opportunities were out there. So I decided to join the Army, become an Arabic linguist. And over nine years, I went to Iraq, I went to Afghanistan, and I spent about five years minus give or take a few, uh, stationed in Italy as well. And after doing all of those things, I went to law school in the United States, graduated and have had a variety of law-related jobs since then, both military and civilian. And after being out of the full-time military for several years, I realized that I was not doing a good job of conveying the lessons I had learned in a way that was useful to other people. When the pandemic hit, I realized that a concerted effort was required if I was ever going to get this knowledge out there. And that was the origin of the book. The book is called How to Deal with Damn Near Anything, A Paratrooper's Guide to Life. Yeah, I think you kind of explained why you have written this book. Uh, but I'm keen to understand more. Before you got writing on this book, you said there was a period um, where you had to figure out how to write it, where it's, it's so it's, it's, understandable by, 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 by people, by the common people that are not in the army. Tell me about that period. Certainly. One of the things the military has struggled with is the transition from being in the military to not being in, whether that's not being in full-time or not being in at all. And I got three days of training for that to happen. 
And that was, and everybody involved did the best they could. But obviously three days is not enough to make that type of jump from one way of life to a completely different one, especially when going to the civilian world and going to law school, which is its own very specific type of environment. So I rolled in and I came in way too hot, as we say. I was too judgmental, too sarcastic, too profane, literally, for most uh, social situations. And just generally didn't have a good feel for what other people's experiences were. And at the same time, I was surrounded by people. They were smart. They were good natured. They were good socially, but they were struggling in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, it surprised me. I was thinking, how can these people that have all these skills and advantages still find themselves not reaching where they want to be? That was a mystery to me. And what I came to realize over time was that schools and workplaces don't address certain parts of development. And there's good reasons for that. It's not because they don't care. It's just because schools and workplaces exist for other reasons. And if they develop you in these more personal ways, it's almost coincidence. It's not the kind of thing you can rely on. Whereas the military has an environment focused on training and development that is a different ethos and teaches a different set of lessons. So once I got over myself and once I realized that that my opinion was only worth sharing if it was going to benefit someone else, not because I was just feeling like sharing it, then I was in a place where I thought I could write these things down in a way that was useful to other people. It must have been hard for you, like coming out of the military where you where you're surrounded by people that are like minded and you then you you come back into the society as you know it. And you realize that most people are struggling with with things that you never have maybe thought about when you were uh, in military. What were the common differences that you found between people that are in military and people that are not? There is an expectation among folks in the military that you're going to work together as a unit. And even if you have individual goals, which we all do, and my life could look very different in the military than somebody who worked six feet away from me because of what their mission was, who was in charge of them. So it's not to say we all live the same life, but we go through similar experiences and we're working on a broad enough level towards a similar goal, a collective goal. That's not true other places. And it, it, it shouldn't be true. You know, every law student gets to take their own classes, has their own career they want to pursue, uh, does their own work, literally, <laughs> and gets their own grade. And that means that there is less of a communal experience. And that leads to a difficulty in building an environment that serves everyone's needs. So what you end up in schools with what I call a technical education. You learn the, the ins and outs, the details of whatever it is you're going to be doing for a living. You know, if you're a plumber, you learn how plumbing works. If you're a law student, you learn how the law works but you don't get developed in more personal ways. And by personal, I don't mean moral. I don't mean making you a good person in the way that we say that. I mean ways such as being self-aware, learning how to take initiative, uh, learning how to be adaptable and efficient. So I picked out five traits for the book that I thought the military, particularly being a paratrooper specifically, which is what I was, did an excellent and uniquely good, not exclusively good, you can learn these things elsewhere, but did a uniquely good job of developing. So that's what the book was focused around, those five traits. Um, John, before we get into these uh, specific lessons as part of the book, I'm curious to take it just one step back. Now, you got into the military and you're an Arabic linguist and you're a paratrooper. My question, first of all, did you have a choice to choose what language and where do you be where do you get deployed and if yes then why that choice if not how did that make you feel well it's true for most things in the military you have a choice kind of so what <laughs> i mean by that here 
you take a test that's designed to measure how good you are at learning languages. There's a fake made up language and you have to, you hear a rule that's made up and you have to apply that rule to a set of questions and they add another rule and another rule. And you get put into a category. So you can't choose one specific language, but you get put into a category and you know you're going to get a language from that category. So for instance, the highest category is at this time, I know they can change it, was Arabic, Chinese, Korean, and Pashto. So I knew it was going to be one of those four. And then I heard if you get some experience, even a little bit, they're going to be inclined to let you learn the language. You've at least studied a bit on your own. So I, okay. So I took enough Arabic to say with a straight face that I had a, a beginning in that language. They didn't have to know how, how much of a beginning that actually was and was able to get into Arabic. And the courses at the time that I took it was a little, about a year, it's, it's 72 weeks to be exact. So in terms of where you deploy, I mean, you kind of know what the deal is. When I was at basic training or the little thing before basic training where you get your hair cut and you get your uniforms, a little preparation, uh, we watched the statue of Saddam get toppled in Baghdad. So we knew we knew what the deal was. And you would like to think anyone who learned Arabic would want to go to a place that was spoken. Not always true. You, you get some folks that were more interested in the theory than they were in the practice. But by and large, you can narrow your choices down, even if you don't get one specific choice in terms of what you learn or where you go. Got to. That's that's great to hear. I think Ali, you've got a burning follow-up there, or yeah, yeah. I wanted to jump back into the book. Um, you gave us the five things that you tried to address in the book, but I wish I had the chance to read it. But because of the circumstances, I didn't get the chance to at least at least look through it. But how? If if someone asks you for a three minute synopsis of the book, how would you do it? There are certain things that are important to learn that you have to take the initiative to teach yourself or to begin teaching yourself. No professor is going to do it. Very few bosses are going to do it. And the reason is these traits aren't required to get a degree or to do a job, but they are required to live a life that is both fulfilling and as low stress as possible. When I say low stress, I don't mean sitting with the feet up, not doing anything. I mean being able to take all of the energy you can and put it towards things you want to be dealing with instead of having to be reactive and defensive and dealing with drama and stress. The military has a way of focusing on training that is unique. And if you can take that focus, then you can have successes that aren't possible otherwise. And what I've tried to do is to distill that down because I didn't realize nobody else was learning this until I got out of the military and I went to schools and jobs elsewhere. And I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is not a thing. This is not, a, this is not a thing at all. It's not even a thing a little bit. So that would be the, the TLDR as we call it is the military. Most of the stories you hear about combat. I get that. I was there. That's his experiences are always going to be, deeply meaningful to me, things that I'll remember for the rest of my life. That's not what I use in my day-to-day -day life now. So it's understandable that the movies and books that get made about the military focus on those because those are the most immediately compelling stories, but you can't take that home with you. And people are trying to kill you every day. No book is going to help you. You may need to make some, some different life decisions in general. What you're probably trying to do is live your normal life to the best and to the fullest. And that's where these other lessons can be useful. And it was it was an adjustment process for me because I thought everyone, you know, which was a little bit naive maybe, but I thought implicitly, obviously, that everyone had a similar experience. And I realized that just wasn't the case. Let's say 
hypothetically, we have an audience name named Mike, and he's listening to this podcast. How would you? And he has zero military experience. And let's say, let's assume that he's struggling with those five characteristics that you already mentioned. How would you tell him to go about acquiring this this knowledge and apply it to his life? It starts with self awareness. Honestly, and that is that is something one thing that was very important to me in putting the book together was to rely on research as much as possible, because otherwise it's just a guy telling stories. And that's fine for five minutes, 10 minutes. Hopefully it's fine for 45 minute podcast, but it's not necessarily going to be fine for an entire book. So I went into some detail to find whether the instinctual things I thought from my own experience were actually backed up by research. So what I would tell Mike is it has to start with being self-aware. You cannot fix the right things if you can't acknowledge the right things need fixing. The military is great about that because you spend so much time around other people in close quarters with them. It is really hard to get away with a fake version of yourself. You may, in a normal job, you may see your boss once a day, maybe less than that, depending on how your job is structured. That is not how it works for us. You're going to get constant feedback, honest feedback, and you're going to get feedback from people who are cycled in and out of your life. So there's this concept called pro-social lying where people aren't honest with each other because they want to protect the feelings of those they like. And there's a time for that, right? If somebody just broke up with their five-year significant other, maybe telling them that it wasn't the right person for them can wait a week or two, right? So you don't always need to jump in with the raw truth immediately. But that does need to happen at some point. The military cycles people in and out. They give you that feedback. They give you an honest picture of yourself. So that's what I would tell Mike to start with is look for ways that you can get that honest feedback, that you can get feedback from people you wouldn't usually get it from. So you can get a more well-rounded, more accurate picture of where you're at, and that way you can know where you need to go. Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from? It will help more than you know. Thank you. So I'm, I'm, you go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Um, I'm curious to debunk you know what he just said around what happens behind closed doors and you actually have to be yourself your authentic self which is i think the language you've been using now universally and i'm curious to hear about your transition process john day one or year one in the military versus john year nine in the military and how was that journey did you end up I guess learning more about your ending self, I'm sure you did, but how long did it take you? Those two people are almost unrecognizable from each other and not in a bad way. When I first decided to join the military, people were terrified, not because they thought I would suffer or fail, but because they thought I would be so sarcastic that I would get in trouble immediately and stay in trouble for the entirety of my career. And what I had to learn was there's a time and a place. It worked out better than I thought and, and other people thought in the sense that if you do a good job, you're probably not going to be micromanaged and you're allowed to be more of an individual than is stereotypically thought about the military because usually whoever's in charge of you is pretty busy. They just don't have time to micromanage you. It's not to say it's impossible, but it's unlikely. So the John that went in was very much a, a an individual in the sense that that's one thing about growing up with your grandma is there are no doctrines pushed on you. I wasn't pushed towards certain careers. I wasn't pushed towards certain ways of life big city versus rural, religion. She didn't have a favorite sports team. I got nothing. It was a completely wide open field. And that meant that I was just making all my own decisions. And as an only child, again, I didn't have to work within a greater structure. 
So the military was a great way for me to learn to do that. So the biggest improvement probably from year nine, John, or from year one, John, was learning to work within that structure and to see structure as a thing that can amplify how much of an impact you make, that can amplify how satisfying something is. It's not, it doesn't have to be limiting. It doesn't have to be constricting. It's something that can be empowering if you're in the right structure and you work within that structure in the right way. Well, while you and I mean, when you were answering Amin's question, I just spoke to Mike. Mike says, is getting honest feedback the only way to gain self-awareness? Is that enough if you actually don't understand yourself, regardless of what people tell you, if you don't understand those flaws within you? Is that enough? It, it I think it's enough, but over time. Generally, the type of people who can hear something negative about themselves and embrace it immediately are not the kind of people who are struggling to make progress. You have to be aware of some people take feedback too seriously. It affects their motivation, affects their self-worth, their self-esteem. Some people could be confronted with incontrovertible evidence that they suck at something and will refuse to believe it. So you have to try and identify, and, and people can exist with on both parts of that spectrum for different parts of their life. Somebody may think they're great at something no matter what, and somebody may not appreciate how good they are at something that's a different part of their life. So yes, I think it is enough, but you have to give it time and you have to get it from a variety of sources. Because usually people are able to brush off something they don't want to hear the first time they hear it, maybe the second time they hear it. It's, it's who they heard it from. It's like, oh, there's an explanation for it. There's a, it, all kinds of caveats that we can, we can create for ourselves. But over time, and, and that's one of the, I hope it's both empowering, even if it is a little bit dispiriting, to tell people that it takes time. The, the, the get-rich-quick schemes of self-improvement are about as likely to work as the get rich quick schemes of getting rich. This is the kind of thing that takes time. And I think that's going to be key for Mike or for anyone else in terms of turning that feedback into action. John, I have a burning question around the first time you jumped out of a plane. <laughs> what was going on in your head at that moment exactly? So I'm a chronic under-warrior, talking about self-awareness. I'm the kind of guy that just assumes it's going to work out, which is helpful sometimes, but can lead to under-preparation if I'm not careful. So I'm not the type to stress out, but I am the type to be a little too casual sometimes. So first time I jumped out of an airplane, I was sitting on, we don't sit on seats, at least in this type of airplane. You sit on this kind of netting, right? That way it's not rigid. It's easier to move. And we're sitting there and I'm in the middle of the pack. So I'm not going to be the first guy out. I'm not going to be the last guy out. I'm just in the middle. And usually, at least in training, you go out 10 people at a time. So the first 10 people leave and it's getting emptier and emptier. And it's getting more and more real that you're going out the same door as everybody else. There's this guy sitting across from me. This story is actually in the book. And he is terrified. And he keeps counting the people in front of him. And he counts three or four times. And he looks at me and he yells at me because it's loud. He's like, do you want to switch seats? And I'm like, oh, I see what's going on here. He had counted. He realized he was 11th in line. So once the next 10 people went out, he was going to be first. He wanted no part of that. <laughs> so I was like, I'll switch with you. And we switch. And I get to, I get to the door. And luckily, it's, it was more scary to rappel from like 40-ish feet in the air 
than it was to jump from five or 600 feet in the air. Because 40 feet in the air, I'm like, plus your back is to the what you're doing when you're rappelling. I was like, the ground's kind of close. But I was high enough up when I jumped that it didn't bother me. And it turns out, fun fact, the safest place to be when you're jumping is the first person out. Because what usually gets you, if something does go wrong, either it's a mistake you make or a mistake somebody in front of you has made that complicates your safe exit from the aircraft. You're the first person out. Hey, good luck, everyone. Have fun back there. Like, I'm out. I'm good. Y'all have fun. So there is actually benefits to being the first one out, to taking that initiative that you don't get if you decide to just be in the middle of the pack. That is very interesting. And I can't not think about how does that translate to life? I mean, sometimes, you know, being first and it's almost taking one for the team is what they call it. It almost comes across as a sacrifice, but you, you, you're, you I mean, in a way, looking after yourself by actually doing that. You know, but it, it when you're in a learning, yeah, when you're in a learning or training environment at work, at school, if you're the first person to try something, everyone's learning, you're not supposed to get it perfectly. If you're like the eighth person, the ex expectations only get higher. And I would tell people in law school, like, I'm in, I'm here because I don't know this. You know who's here because they know this? The professor. I'm okay not knowing this. Now I have to do, I have to put forward an effort. I have to do the readings. I have to do my homework. I have to, you know, participate. I don't have to be an expert in this. It's okay for me to try and fail. So one of the things you do before you jump out of the plane is you, you jump. The very first thing you do is you jump out of a fake plane doorway. It's like three inches off the ground and you pretend you're in the sky, even though you're very much not in the sky. So what you do is you get in there and you, that's where you mess up. There are safe, you, you, if you are given a safe place to mess up in the workplace or in school, mess up all you want. Now, you may worry that people who see you mess up are thinking you're not good at this, right? that they're getting some kind of impression because they're seeing you fail, that they're going to think you're less talented than you are. And those worries can be real. Don't get me wrong. People will draw unfair conclusions sometimes from that. But you have to get over that worry because what happens or what matters is when you do it for real, whether it's when you take the test, when you give the presentation or when you jump out of the plane and you want to make sure you've taken maximum advantage of all those opportunities to fail, regardless of what other people thought when that was happening. John, I've been thinking about what you said before around in in in, in, in the military, since, since you are confined within the space with a lot of different people, if you're not authentic, you not you won't be able to get through. Then you touched on the fact that if that doesn't quite really apply in in the work environment outside of military, what this how does that disadvantage us in in a work environment where we don't show up authentically every day? Because if, because as you said, we don't have to show our real self in a work environment for whatever reason that be. How would that how does that disadvantage us? The stress. The more that you put yourself in a position where you haven't been authentic or just say haven't been honest and not because you've overtly lied and said you want a Nobel Prize or something, but because you put yourself in a position where you felt like you couldn't be straightforward with people, the stress of maintaining that over and over and over again only goes up. It doesn't have to be an ethic. Normally, we see that with ethical problems where somebody lies once about a credit card expense and then they just they're like, oh, I'm stuck now. And it keeps compounding and compounding. But it doesn't have to be an ethical problem. You don't have to have violated any law. You just have to have put yourself in a position where you're not allowed to be straightforward, to be genuine. And there, obviously, 100% genuineness is not always possible. Even when possible, it's not always wise. 
but the vast majority of people I know undershoot the target. There's we know who everybody's been around an overshare. We know who those people are. Like you're like, man, you're a little too genuine. Like that is a personal problem, but maybe you didn't need to talk about that at this meeting. But that's not that's a that's a rare exception. Most people are not that way, and they could stand to be a, a, a interview with Alanichi talked about this. Like it talked about the idea that you could stand to be a little more vulnerable. You don't have to put your whole heart on your sleeve, but you can give a human side to things instead of trying to pretend that every day is perfect and everything you've ever done is the best thing you've ever done. I think out of everyone that you could have picked to talk to, you picked the perfect couple here. I mean, being from uh, an Arabic background, I am from Afghanistan. So I'm really keen to hear, like, what was your experience first you when you first stepped into Afghanistan or Iraq, and how did that change over time? So I went to Iraq first, and I went to Baghdad. So I was in a major city, and there were, it was very much trying to get back something it had had before. Whereas when I went to Afghanistan, I was in uh, the eastern part of the country in, in four different provinces, mostly in Nuristan. And it was, we were trying to bring something that had not been there before. So it's a different type of challenge within recent memory, because Saddam had been in power a long time, but, but not, you know, it hadn't been a hundred years of that type of rule. So within living memory for a lot of people, they, they knew there was a different way their country could be run, their society could exist. And we were trying to help them get that back. So you had to look for people who embraced that. And you had to look for ways to sell the virtue of that way of thinking to people who weren't familiar with it already. And you had to understand that certain people were just not going to be on board. And it was interesting. And you had to learn that you had to learn that there were you had to give credit to, to the people you met. You had to learn that there's a difference between educated and smart. A lot of the folks that we met in these countries had not had the chance to get an education, but they were every bit as smart as anybody you would meet anywhere else. If you underestimated them, you were going to fail whatever you were trying to do. So, for instance, in Iraq, it was about learning to respect some of the things that people thought that you knew weren't true, but they knew to be 100% true in their heart. And if you could sit there and try to, to convince them that XYZ wasn't true about Shia or Sunni or about um, any, any particular group of people in the country, but if you didn't meet people where they were at, you weren't going to have any positive effect on them at all. So if anything, it was a one big lesson in the limits of your own influence. And if you didn't realize the best places to put your time and energy, you weren't going to make any progress at all. So in a way, it was humbling. It was empowering to be there because in a lot of times we were the law. And with the consent of the locals, we weren't necessarily imposing this. One of my favorite quotes I would hear a lot in Iraq is like, we don't want you here. We don't want you to leave. It was what, which I understood completely because it was like, obviously, you know, Americans are very proud, I think, for good reason, is most of the time. How would we feel if somebody else had to come in and, quote unquote, fix our problems? We wouldn't be big fans of it. So I understood the idea of not wanting outsiders to come and fix their problems. But they also realized that if we left, those problems might get worse. And that tension, that kind of unique situation was something you had to respect, that they were allowed to be proud of their country and allowed to not want you there but you still had to look for ways to help them achieve what they wanted. So uh, sorry if that was a bit of a long answer, but it was, it was one of the most 
it was a textured experience that gave me an appreciation for the almost infinite backgrounds that people can come from and the variety of ways that the the variety of things they want and how nuanced you have to be at helping them get there. I think that that perfectly ties into back to the concept of like a change and change. It, when you trying to make a change in any organization, what you want to do, you want to find those early adopters, right? So that's basically what you were doing there. You're trying to find those people that embrace and those early adopters into the new ways of living that they, so most people probably could not see, but those people could see and could actually help getting there. Yeah, after a month or two, maybe it was, I was fortunate, especially in Iraq, to speak the language. And that gave me an immediate window into people's lives that my, my colleagues who didn't speak the language didn't have access to as quickly. After like a month or two, I'm like, man, these are just people. There's not really, obviously there's differences in, in culture and background, but at the end of the day, they're just people. And being able to reach that point, it makes it easier to find those, those early adopters and to find the folks who are willing to at least listen, not always agree, but at least willing to listen and to work with you. John, I'm really curious, I think around the point of you engaging with a fairly community-driven society. I think I agree with you. You realize they're only just people. And to Ali's point, it's not too dissimilar from trying to influence the early adopters. Let's say within a village, you have to find the first 10 that are actually going to believe in really what you're saying, except for when you work in a corporate, you can do that individually. And that's not how Middle Eastern culture works. If one of us says, no, you're not going to pass this line which is very much different from how Western mindset operates, more the individualistic versus the East being more community driven. And I'm sure you're across that very, very well. You probably felt that difference when you first arrived. How did you manage that? Because, I mean, I go back home sometimes and I realize far out, like I've been living <laughs> in Australia for 10 years and I'm feeling less more community centered now think more about myself and then i just have to catch myself but whoa what's going on well no it, it was a transition for me both going there and something i have to work to keep going because one of the, one of my goals with writing the book was to capture the lessons that were universal and that's where i mean people stubbornness is as universal as anything i mean i picked i picked five traits i want to encourage in people i could have picked five that everyone has to maybe that'll be book two pick five that everyone has to overcome. And, and you know, I've seen stubbornness in, in all its forms, different places. But th to speak specifically to what you were saying, uh, the, the communal nature of it meant that it was a different source of authority. So, for example, it was Adam Bosque. We were guarding it because Iraqi soldiers were going to come search it for religious reasons. We weren't going to go inside. Well, a rumor spread that we had, in fact, gone inside. And an actual mob, like a large mob, not like 12 angry people, but an actual, I, I turned to a buddy of mine, I'm like, I have seen this movie, right? I'm not trying to live this movie, uh, starts coming towards us. And there's an old man in the center of the front line of the mob. And he doesn't have a sign. He doesn't have uh, advisors with him or a microphone, or, but he is clearly the guy. You just know he's the guy. He is the communal center of authority. So I go up and I start talking to this guy. We can barely hear each other over just this hundreds of angry people. Not violent, not violent, but just angry. And we, start, we yell at each other's ears. He's like, why did you go inside the mosque? I'm like, we did not go inside the mosque. I promise we were waiting for the Iraqi army. And luckily the Iraqi army pulled up like 30 seconds before that happened. And he's like, oh, okay. Are you, like, are you sure you did not go inside? I was like, I promise we have not gone inside. 
and you can you can go and look for yourselves here talk to the iraqi army guy and he went and talked to him everything was fine nobody got hurt uh, everything worked out great but it was about taking that time even if it's a split second to to okay this group of people works a certain way this is the person who they look to to send them signals about what's important about what how to feel about something it's not my job to impose anything on anybody my job, I got information is useful to me, right? The same thing when I came out of law school or when I arrived at law school, I didn't realize it then. I have information that's useful or I think is useful. Who do I give this information to in a way that it will be listened to and taken seriously and put into practice, hopefully? And when I got out of law school, I was just like, hey, everybody, here's all the information I've got. You can have it all. And it's like, no, that's just like backing up the dump truck and pouring people, pouring information on people's heads was not going to work. I had to look for the right time and the right place and the right people. So in that instance in Iraq, I was like, okay, this is the guy. He's clearly the 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 nexus of this. So let me just take a minute. And it was funny because all the other soldiers were like, what are you doing? Because I would, I disappeared in that mob. There's like a little helmet bouncing around because I'm five nine, which usually I disappear in a mob. But you know, I was a little more visible depending on what country I'm in at five nine than I would be otherwise. So you can see my helmet bobbing on top of the crowd. And the, somebody came and reached in and tried to pull me out of there. I was like, I'm good. Don't worry about it. Didn't never felt unsafe for a second. It was just about understanding the situation you're in and not trying to impose, but trying to work with. That's I, uh, yeah, these um, the Mike from ten years from ten years has come back and asked me. He's like, I'm quite self-aware now. What do I do? <laughs> self-awareness. Well, the next step is to start taking initiative. Because there is an expectation sometimes that things will happen for us. And even if those things are promised by people, those people don't always follow through. And again, like I said, with schools and workplaces, it's not out of malice. It's not out of disinterest. But people are dealing with their own stuff. So you have to be, there's a phrase in the military. And people understandably see the military as a very structured place. And in some ways it is. But there's a phrase. The phrase is, it's your career. And when people say that to you, they mean you need to take the initiative to find the things you want to do. Now, they're on the military, we'll send you somewhere. And every couple of years, it will send you somewhere else. Like the, the wheels will keep turning. It's the same way with life in general. Things will keep happening, but you need to exert the level of control you can about making those things happen the way you want them to. So I would tell Mike, okay, now you know what you need to work on. You have to take the initiative to ensure that the changes you want to make or the goals you want to reach actually happen. And it's one of those things... One of the challenges about discussing these kinds of things is a lot of times there's some things in the book that I think are going to be new to most people, these people not around the military. There's some things that aren't. Most people know they're supposed to take initiative. So what? how do you help give them that extra push? And it's funny because the one of the stories in the book is about a literal push, actually a kick, that somebody got to jump out of a, a fake airplane door, not the one three inches off the ground. After your fake airplane door three inches off the ground, there's a fake airplane door like 25 feet off the ground. And somebody refused to go through until they got a literal kick in the ass to send them flying out of the door. Now you're on a zip line, it was fine. But you're going to get that kick in the military in a way that you're not gonna get it in most civilian places. Your professor's not gonna give you a show up at your house. Your work isn't gonna force you to do the work. They're gonna find somebody else. So it's about taking that upon yourself and learning to take the initiative because the institutions that we interact with usually will just find somebody else instead if you don't do that yourself. Quite like that. I think it just ties into the concept of self-accountability, self isn't it? Do you, 
before he starts taking initiatives, do you talk about setting uh, a goal? Or is setting a goal overrated? It depends on the person. I, I'll be frank with you. One of the things that I've worked on is what role does writing a book play in the life of somebody who likes their day job? A lot of times there's an assumption that if you write a book, if you don't dedicate yourself to promoting that book and its contents as your main job, that you somehow you don't take it seriously. But there's no reason the quality of a book is correlated with the time someone spends on promoting it. So what do you do if you're happy with your day job? So your goals can be different depending on your circumstances. And so I would tell Mike that it, you should have some sort of overarching plan, but it does not need to be a checklist. It doesn't need to be a detailed roadmap. It doesn't have to be in a spreadsheet. It just has to capture the essence of what you're looking to do. I mentioned I was stationed in Italy. At one point after I'd left, I had a coworker that was going with his fiance to Italy. And he asked me about it because he knew that I'd live there. Because one thing about people who get to live in Italy and come back, we won't shut up about it. So he knew that I'd live there and had opinions about food and everything else. So I got better about that eventually. That, that, that's how year nine John needed to improve when he became like year 12 John. So he asked me about this and he's like, I've got this whole spreadsheet. And I was like, you can stop right there. You do not go to the Mediterranean with a spreadsheet. You will be miserable. You will be absolutely miserable. You just need to capture the essence of the place, the vibe. You go to Germany with a spreadsheet. You go to Norway with a spreadsheet. That's fine. Don't go to Italy with a spreadsheet. So it depends. If you've got the type of, if Mike has the type of goal, if Mike wants to be a doctor, he's got to hit a bunch of very specific check marks. And he's going to need a more detailed plan to get there. But if Mike's good in his career and he's trying to improve his personal life, it could be dangerous to say, I want a serious girlfriend or boyfriend by six months from now, a year from now. I want to be married by age 30 or 35. That kind of stuff can get you in trouble. So I think you need to take a step back and look at your overarching goal and then decide if it's a good fit for a specific set of, of tasks leading up to it or if it's something more holistic where you work on areas of yourself and you know that if you do that work, the goals will come. I mean, so did you, yeah, that's gonna. I really had to ask. Did you go to Iraq or Afghanistan with a spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, and like I said, I'm an underwear. At one point, my drill sergeant in basic training looked at me and he goes, "You're enjoying this, aren't you?" And I was like, "Maybe, <laughs> drill sergeant," <laughs> because I enjoy being sort of tossed into new situations. So the challenge for me is ensuring that I do the less exciting but just as important parts of a task, right? So I had a terrible undergrad GPA at university because I went to the classes that I thought were interesting. If I didn't think it was interesting. I just didn't go. <laughs> That's okay in your formative stages. That is not a great way to approach life once you, I don't know, have a house. So for me, it was about learning to do those I'm all about the new and potentially exciting. So when it was something like going to Iraq, it was I was okay with the with the new part. But once I got there, I needed to make sure I was I was getting into a routine. I was building habits. I wasn't just uh, looking over the shoulder of the thing that I was dealing with immediately to scan the room and see what else was interesting out there. John, I one of the things I've, I've recently realized I was listening to a podcast with Simon Sinek. I'm not sure if you know him. Do you know Simon Sinek? Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I'll, I'll save yeah. my opinion about that. We'll. Uh, <laughs> I don't want. I don't get on too many tangents, but yes, I do know who he is. I'm familiar he, with uh, Leaders Eat Last. I've read, and I'm familiar with his work overall. Yeah, lovely. So he, uh, I was listening to one of the podcasts he was a guest on, and he was talking about his experience that he went to Afghanistan just for, uh, uh, for just one instance where he wanted to get on the plane and see the helps being dropped uh, to the to the civilians. And a lot of things happened, but one of the things that really stood out to me was when he said that there is a sense of camaraderie, the sense of brotherness that exists within the military that doesn't exist anywhere else. Why it's is true. that? A, a few different reasons. We are around, so I mentioned earlier that you're around people so much that you get a, you have to be at least your mostly genuine self. There's some people that hold out years it's like everyone knows you have a sticker on your truck from a marathon you didn't even run. Like, why are you pretending to be this way? We all know the truth and they just keep going. But for most folks, they give that up, right? And that allows people to connect on a very fundamental level. There was a meme I saw the other day on a friend's Facebook page. It was like, what a military friend group looks like. And it was like, I'm just gonna be literal describe. It was like an Asian guy, like clean cut business casual, like a Mexican dude dressed in like stereotypical, like cholo clothing and like a white guy dressed like a redneck. And it was people you would never expect to interact in normal circumstances, but that's what friend groups look like in the military. It is all these random people from random different places and stripped of the convenience of connecting with people in possibly superficial ways, or at least ways that are, that are your, you're comfortable, you're easy, you're easy connections. You find more profound things in common. That doesn't mean you're going to be friends with everybody you meet in the military. There's friend groups there like anywhere else. But the brotherhood exists because you get a chance to spend enough time around people to connect on a more fundamental and a frankly profound level. It doesn't mean you sit around talking about philosophy all the time, but you get a chance to connect on a more meaningful level than you do when you see someone an hour a day. You have your own desk. In the normal job, you, you may have a study group at university, but how much time are you really spend around people? And when you do, how drunk are you uh, for a lot of that time? Like it's it's a it's a different type of lifestyle. So I think that's where the brotherhood comes from is it's, building it's, those meaningful connections. Is time the only factor? Is there, is there anything else? Like you said about the, the time you spend together and also being your genuine self, which I think those two together kind of work together. I think what I've, what I've tried to but of what I'm witnessing in the society, and I think I've spoken to Amina about this, is like the lack of genuine friendships, right? A lot of friendships are very superficial, like superficial, and they, they don't have that depth. So if I, for example, let's say Mike says, oh, I'm, I'm lacking in the friendship area and I want to create genuine friendships, how do I go about doing that? Time is a meaningful factor. It is not the only factor, but it is a... It's a necessary but not sufficient factor to use that kind of phrasing where it has to be there, but it can't be the only thing. I spent a lot of time around people I didn't like and I didn't always end up liking. Them. But I tell you what, even for the folks I didn't like and who didn't like me, we found common ground. So even if we didn't become friends, we became the best version of each other. The best version of that relationship that could have existed usually did exist. So to speak to Mike's question specifically about building friends, as hard out here in a world where you have a million options. One of the reasons, it, it, it's not just the time that you spend with military people, it's the time you don't spend other places. A lot of military bases are in the middle of nowhere. So guess what? It, you're not going to the whatever club. You're not necessarily going to the, to the whatever game. Your other options may be limited. So that's another reason why you invest. 
So for Mike, try to spend time doing things you genuinely enjoy. Not things you think are cool. Don't strive for something that you think will impress other people or that you think is important or, or prestigious. Spend time doing things that are genuinely enjoyable and meaningful for you. And that will put you in proximity with people that you are most likely to have something meaningful in common with. I'm just gonna jump in here, John. I wanna understand where does hardship really come in? And there's an element of, you know, being down, you know, in the trenches, whether it's with your colleagues, whether it's with your friends, and you know, being there for people who have experienced a fairly traumatic event or they, you know, have been through like a very, very tough phase of their life. I said earlier, maybe it could be a divorce, it could be someone passed away in their family. Mm-hmm. You know, all these sort of events. I generally feel like hardship is almost a key ingredient. And you could spend 20 years, but if there is not even like one, two, three events of like real hardship in, in one of, you know, like the two people's lives where they both just kind of came together, I just find these events like incredibly binding. But keep to get your thoughts, like military, I'm sure the military is the obvious, you know, you're literally. <laughs> laugh or death but the equivalent you know like in society and you know not for people to engineer that but but it's almost accepting like did you learn to be more vulnerable in military to just trust someone like with your life but can you really do that in real life well i think there's two two answers i have one i think hardship is an important second stage that once you're around the right people hardship will bond you closer to those people so, for instance, one friend of mine recently had a close friend of hers commit suicide. You know, it's a deeply, deeply tragic event. And that definitely brought us closer together because that, you know, I was, I, I've known people that that's happened to, military and civilian, honestly. I have actually known more people from my law school class who've committed suicide than from my military career. So it's not, it's not always, not always the group you think it is. But that, def- that hardship definitely cemented what was an already good friendship. But I was already around this person for that cementing to happen. So speaking to the military specifically, there is hardship and then there is tragedy. And I I wanna put those in two separate categories because hardship can be just austerity, living in the middle of nowhere, having a lot of time on your hands, finding out that your flight is delayed for three days. Well, like, I guess I'm in Kazakhstan. I guess I'm in Kyrgyzstan for the next three days. Guess me and my coworker I'm traveling with, I'm gonna be hanging out because we don't know anyone else here. So, There's austerity and that type of hardship where your options are limited. And it is hardship. I don't I don't mean to say it isn't hard because you're away from the the people you love and the support system you have and a lot of things you enjoy. But you're not in any immediate danger. And then there is tragedy. There is risk to yourself. And that builds another level of closeness. Honestly, I don't think that level of closeness is something people should be open to it. If something bad happens to them or to somebody they know. They should both be open to accepting that help and building those connections and willing to build it with others. But that's something life is going to impose on you. And I don't think that people should necessarily seek that out. They should be ready for it, but not in search of it. But when it comes to austerity or other difficulties, other hardships, that does happen on a more regular basis. And I think that people should be aware of that and be they can incorporate that more actively into their into their lives and into the relationships they make. So that makes sense. That mindful of time. Yeah, it does. Um, I'm mindful of time. So I want to 
wrap up with two questions. One one would be, John, what is the what is one question? What is the best question I could ask you right now? Why did you write this book? The the most important thing. What is the most important reason behind you writing the book? Because people weren't willing to set standards and enforce boundaries. And not to introduce something too new, too late in our conversation, but it's something that was important and I wanted to touch on, is there is a point at which willingness to deal with things becomes counterproductive. And one of the things the military is excellent at in every area is having a standard and in encouraging or requiring people to enforce that standard. When I was up for the, and this is just basic training, the very beginning of my career, I don't know anything about anything. There's four platoons in my training group, and each one picks a person to go up against each other, four people competing for the honor graduate award. So my drill sergeant picks me. He brings me into the drill sergeant tent. It is terrifying to be in the drill sergeant tent. That is that if you are, you are not allowed to be in the drill sergeant tent ever. I, I had to look at him twice before I was willing to walk inside. And he pulls me in there and he says, you are not competing against those other three troops. You're competing against the standard. And then he just walks away. He doesn't, doesn't explain. There's no elaboration. He just turns and walks away like a movie. This guy's like a movie character. And my first thought is I'm alone in the drill sergeant tent now. If another drill sergeant walks in, I'm going to be in so much trouble. I don't know what the hell is going to happen. But years later, thinking about that, it's not about fleeting circumstances that can change. It's not about whoever happens to be around you at work or at school. It, you have to try to anchor yourself to some sort of more fundamental, more meaningful standard that is true regardless of other circumstances. So that is something I want to encourage people to, to think about and if they're interested to read about in the book itself. Brilliant. Uh, we have a closing tradition in the podcast where the previous guest has left you a question. If you could show up more authentically at work and be brave, what would you change in your day to assist others to feel comfortable to show up authentically and bravely as well? Hmm. I think the best way to help people be authentic, especially in the workplace, well, there's two best ways. One is you got to be authentic yourself. Otherwise, the implicit message you're sending is that that's not the right way to be. And people will pick up on that no matter what you overtly say about being authentic. If you, if you don't put that into practice, other people won't believe it. And the other thing is to give concrete examples of what being authentic can actually do for you. It's one thing to tell somebody to do something in the abstract, but if you can link it to specific benefits that happen and come up with a story that's from your experience or from others' experience that will show those benefits, that's the way to actually get people to change their behavior. John, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Our stories are the building blocks of who we are, and we hope this episode was the right trigger to reflect on your stories and how they made you who you are. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on whatever platform you are hearing this from. Until the next Open Diary.